welcome to Let's Talk Robotics. I'm your host, Nikki Rousseau, founder and CEO of Exaptic, a robotics company based in Melbourne. We specialize in telepresence, social and educational robots. It's a great honor for me to have Dr. Ian Opperman on the show today. Ian is the New South Wales government's chief data scientist working within the Department of Customer Service. He is also an industry professor at the University of Technology, Sydney. Ian, welcome and thanks very much for joining me today. Great to be here. So um, as we speak, you um, in Sydney lockdown, how are you coping with this? How is it affecting your work? Well, it's not actually affecting work that much at all. We we have had lots of practice, unfortunately, at this working from home. Uh, the real challenge, uh, I'm not sure whether or not you're able to see, but I'm starting to get COVID here. I've just <laughs> bought a pair of clippers and we'll see what this weekend brings. Oh, so thank goodness we're doing the podcast now. So if there's a talk to you yet, we'll know why. I know it's it's a bit of a challenge. Um, I don't know if you've seen any photos, but my hair changes anyway from short to very long. So it's fine. The, people roll with us. So what are your responsibilities as the chief data scientist? So I just had someone come ring the doorbell. So that's one of the realities of working from home these days. Uh, so for the first four years I was with government, I was the chief data scientist and ran the data analytics center, which was really a way of, of tackling wicked policy challenges with the lens of data and sophisticated analytics. The last two years I've moved to just being chief data scientist and handed the, the DAC over to someone else. And so I spend my days now really trying to tackle some of the, the more forward-leaning aspects of data sharing and use. So we released the AI strategy last year, and we're in the process now of building an AI assurance framework. So that's the first one that New South Wales has had. We've also last year released the Smart Places strategy, and Smart Places really is about bringing communities to life, better understanding situational awareness, making cities and places in New South Wales more livable, uh, more uh, workable, more sustainable. And so I spend a lot of my time moving between these different applications of data sharing and use, trying to bring them to life, bring those strategies to life, bring those policies to life, whether it is in the form of trying to uh, bring to bear a better understanding of people's level of comfort around use of data or the assurance frameworks, which are protections around use of artificial intelligence by New South Wales government or in fact, helping to drive the, the biggest piece of all, which is the data sharing strategy for New South Wales, which was released this year. And it's interesting that the order we did things, uh, we released the smart places strategy first, then we released the AI strategy, and now we've released the, the data sharing strategy, because ultimately data sharing is the big game. That's the one that allows the AI, that's the one that allows the smart places. And we had just recently a uh, smart places summit. I was go to say last Friday, but in fact, it was a week before that, yeah. where we, we talked about smart cities, smart places, but really we're also trying to bring forward the conversation around data sharing and use, artificial intelligence, digital twins, trustworthiness, internet of things. So my, my job with New South Wales is actually to do all the fun stuff and to try and bring these, help bring these strategies to life and make them meaningful in the day-to-day lives of not just folks using them within New South Wales government, but actually trying to deliver better outcomes for people of New South Wales. So you've mentioned the Smart Places Initiative a few times now. Tell us a little bit about this and how it came about. So New South Wales has been, broadly speaking, moving towards a coordinated smart city, smart places uh, framework for some time. There's been quite a lot of investment in terms of infrastructure, in particular around the, uh, the, the 
there's three cities deal for Sydney, but also in, in different regional hubs. But just taking Sydney as an example, the, the, the three cities plan for Sydney is something that the Greater Sydney Commission um, brought to life. And one of those, of course, is the Western Digital Parkland City. Pre-COVID, way back in 2019, there were quite a lot of, of ideas that New South Wales government said, what we want are these outcomes, we want to deliver these results. And getting to those results, we don't necessarily have all the answers, which is, in fact, a fairly bold position for governments to take. Historically, governments are the folks who know, the folks who, who manage and so on. But the, the approach was, this is the outcomes we want. We know there's lots of really good innovation and tech in New South Wales and beyond. Help us understand how we might deliver on those outcomes. That was 2019. Uh, over the, the, the 2020, a lot of that thinking, a lot of those ideas, a lot of those, those really innovative approaches were put together and, again, more crisply matched against these are the outcomes we want to achieve. These are the ways of measuring whether we are achieving those. And typically, you don't just deliver one outcome. You're looking to deliver a set of outcomes, an outcomes framework. So we're looking at the interplay between those outcomes and then trying to build the things that we need to order to, to understand the journey of the journey of a community, the journey of a building project, the journey of a piece of infrastructure, and increasingly use data analytics to improve the level of understanding of how, of how of the situational awareness and to build increasing understanding of how we build digital twins to those communities. And then, of course, map it to the major infrastructure builds, major infrastructure strategies for, for example, the Western Digital Parkland City. It all came together when we had a really good understanding of the outcomes in language that people can understand, but the ability to map that to how we're going to measure it. And then the alignment between the 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 physical infrastructure, the built environment strategy, and also the digital strategy. And all came together last year as the smart places strategy. And since last year, it was approximately a year ago that the strategy was released. We held a summit to say, this is all, the, this is what we've done. This is what we're building. This is what we're planning. This is the digital equivalent of it. And this is where we can continue our journey, understanding the world through situational awareness, predictive capability, uh, scenario planning and the digital infrastructure that underpins that. So in terms of um, New South Wales, is I think you're on the forefront of this. How are the other states in Australia going? So I, I, I think New South Wales is at the forefront and there are a couple of independent ways of verifying that, but that that's a snapshot in time. We, we certainly have a very forward-leading minister. We have people who really get now the, the complexity, the subtlety, but the power of use of, of data and digital, but we have been quite actively sharing and learning from other states and territories. The summit we just held, we specifically included digital twin work from Victoria and digital twin work from Queensland. We specifically included some of the 5G work that the Queensland's doing because ultimately no one can go it alone. No one can be a state in isolation. We're all part of Australia. So we, we certainly have lots of motivation, we have lots of energy, we have lots of good ideas, but we, we and if we're ahead, it's a, it's a moment in time. Uh, although if Minister Dominello stays in the role, we'll probably stay in that position for quite some time. But anyway, it's a moment in time and we, we are looking to actively share. All right. There's actually a recording available of that uh, summit that you held. Would it be okay if I put that in the show notes? 
Absolutely. Okay, I'll, I'll make a note of that. So, so talking about data, our world, as we know, it is rapidly changing and cybersecurity is uh, probably not as taken as seriously as it should be in Australia. What's your thoughts on this? So cybersecurity is really, really uh, the, a really important issue, of course. But the, the question of whether we're taking it seriously enough, I, I don't think we can ever over-invest in cybersecurity. New South Wales announced the Digital Restart Fund two years ago, $1.6 billion, of which more than $220 million was specifically allocated to improving cybersecurity capability in New South Wales. But we know that this is a race that, that is, is accelerating just as the use of data, just as the use of digital. In fact, because of that in some way, the, the issue around cybersecurity increases to accelerate. So it's something that we can't ever pay enough attention to. And increasingly, as we rely upon digital systems, digital services, and, and data as the way of bringing those to life or understanding, it's something that we're going to have to keep running hard. Yeah. Um, I, I spoke to Professor Lena Yao. She uh, was the winner of uh, Cybersecurity, the Women in Robotics a- and AI in New Zealand and Australia. And um, she was telling me about a framework that she's busy developing and um, I think when I read stats about the fire, bushfires, the peel, so Australia was like one in every four seconds we were under attack of a cybersecurity somewhere from, from outside the world. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's when we are distracted or when, when the country is distracted with big issues, natural disasters, that's when obviously people's attention is not absolutely focused on cybersecurity. It, it leads to some vulnerabilities. The good thing is that... Every time we, we look back and see just what has happened, it actually is giving us more willingness to, to take it seriously or, or helps us better understand uh, just how important cybersecurity is. And if you've got fires and drought and the cybersecurity attack, then that multiple threat vectors really starts to come forward, people, uh, comes forward in people's thinking. So we have learnt. We are continuing to learn. We also are looking to be... Uh, more clear about what happens when things go wrong. Uh, in New South Wales, we actually held an event during Privacy Awareness Week where we talked about the data breaches that had taken place with Services New South Wales. We had the Head of Service New South Wales talk about what happened. We had the Government Chief Information and Digital Officer talk about all the things that have been done since then. And we had the, the Deputy Secretary who's responsible for owns the data strategy in New South Wales talk about all, this, all the work that's been done around data sharing and use. So the message that we are constantly looking to communicate is that it's complex, it's serious, there's a lot of subtlety to it, and we know that there are some bad actors out there. And we have to bring all of that together when we're thinking about our our use of data and our our sharing of data. Yeah, and just speaking of um, which, that um, I read an article about that, um, and it's way back, I acknowledge it was 2016 or 17, that um, like serious management of like companies, it can affect anyone, like whether a big or small company, it's, it's not just for government out there, it's all companies in Australia that need to be aware of this. Look, absolutely, absolutely. During the early phases of uh, the, the coronavirus in Australia last year in 2020, uh, the Australian Computer Society released advice for small companies and advice for medium-sized companies. Many large companies are already very sophisticated. And in fact, I would go to say that I think all large companies are very sophisticated. But the, it's the small to medium-sized enterprises who are typically focused on running the business as opposed to protecting the business from cyber 
And what the Australian Computer Society did was quite complementary to some of the, the, the Commonwealth cyber uh, organisations who are also trying very hard to upskill the, uh, the smaller end of the market, as, as well as give advice to individuals. Yeah, I suppose for every small enterprise out there, Ian, the, the question is cost. I mean, that's always prevalent, you know, where do your resources go? So yeah. if you're sort of um, attacking cybersecurity there for a small company, what's your advice to them? Well, the first is that you're not alone. Uh, secondly, there are some good resources out there. I mentioned the Australian Computer Society with Cyber Essentials, but there are other, some, there are other very good uh, uh, resources out there to help you understand what to next. There's also... It's worth understanding that you don't need to jump from no security to Fort Knox level security. There are certainly levels of maturity. And one of the things that a good bit of advice is to think about what your cybersecurity posture should be and how long or by when you want to get to that point and also how much you're prepared to invest. And there are some very, very good maturity frameworks that, that help people think through where you might be today or assess where you are today and where you need to go. But lots of resources available. And this is an area where, where governments at Commonwealth and state level and professional organisations are very willing to help because everybody knows it's important. So you and I are both working from home today. You've got a beautiful painting behind you and I'm sitting in my study with my dog on my lap. Iceland's, <laughs> Iceland's just released a report on a four-day working week Um I mean, I, we talk about the new normal, but I don't think there's any going back to the way things were pre-COVID. What, what are your thoughts on people working from home, potentially having a shorter work week? Do you think this is something doable in Australia? So I was with you right up until you said in Australia. I, I, <laughs> I, I lived in Finland for yeah. eight years and I've been going to Finland until COVID. I've been going to Finland every year since uh, 1996. So I lived there for eight years. Finns take... And I know it's not Iceland, but the, the, yeah. the sensibilities are quite similar. Finns have a very strict separation between work and home. There are no such things as pre-meeting breakfasts or pre-work breakfasts, and you typically would not socialise with your work colleagues. Uh, I, I ran a research centre in a city called Oulu in northern Finland, and I once asked one of my colleagues, you know, would you like to come over on the weekend? We'll have a social get-together. And the response was, I see you during the week. Why would I want to see you on the weekend? And, you know, I was the boss. <laughs> anyway, we eventually did create this bit of a community in, in particular for the expats. But the other aspect about Finland is they, they really took vacation seriously. Really, it's, it's phones down. I, I'm out of the, the business, which was really hard to take. And they, they took a very long break over summer, four or five weeks in a row. And that was very hard to adjust to coming from Australia. But... Now, Finland created Nokia, but they've created a whole lot of other companies. And it just doesn't make handsets anymore. So this little country of 5 million people, perhaps a population of Sydney more or less, have been world-leading in so many different ways which do not relate to their, their abundant natural resources in timber or some of the other natural resources they've got. It's really about intellectual property manifested in a whole range of areas from electronics to telecommunications to lifts. Uh, one of the world's largest lift companies is in Finland. And I think Iceland is, is quite similar. But the lessons that I took away from my time in Finland is that there is, there is really a lot to be said for recharging. So for really getting away from things and recharging, there's a lot to be said for not blurring the boundary between work and home. And there's also quite a lot to be said for presenteeism when people are physically in the office 
and uh, are uh, seen to be there, but not, not really focused on it. And each and every one of us, if, if we think about our day, will know that we have idle moments when we are not focused on the job in front. So I think it can work, but it requires some really important factors. The first one is trust. And what COVID did for us was show that we could work from home and show that even though I can't see you, I believe you're still doing things. I believe you're still delivering things. So trust is really quite important. The second is to actually think differently about how we create value. And ours is not creating value. Delivering outcomes or outputs is what creates value. And in particular, if those, out, those outputs are tied to outcomes, so things that make a difference in the real world, then it really is a very, very different thing, as I said, just to putting in um, just time and materials. So could it work in Australia? That's a really interesting question. We have learnt out of necessity to trust each other a little more during COVID. We have learnt that we can do things remotely. We can still engage and we can still be, be uh, social and we, we can still build teams to do all of that. It, it's different to being in the office. It's different from travelling every day. But the benefits are we avoid the traffic gridlock. We avoid the, those those. Uh, peak times in urban environments, which cities are just not designed for, which cause significant delays and also cost us a lot of time. I used to, when giving presentations, used to do a little exercise with an audience and say, you know, most of you living in cities will have a half hour or one hour commute each day. And if you just do this little exercise, if you take your daily commute one way in and double it to get home, multiply by five, because of course we're we're doing it five days a week, and then multiply that by, say, 50 weeks if you take two weeks off in a year. Count up all those hours and then look at your leave balance and see which one's bigger. And you go through this exercise and people's faces start to drop when they realise that they're spending two or three times their annual leave just getting to and from work. So we can do things differently. And if we think about doing things differently, then we could move towards where Iceland is, is moving but there are some social factors that we would really need to overcome in Australia for that to really work. Yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, I think Bill Gates takes a week off in his, in his schedule and he, he just, you can't reach him. There's no phone. He just sits there and recharges. And I think you've hit on an important point there that we're so obsessed with being busy. When do you actually get to think? Because you actually need to be bored to be a little bit creative because you've got that gap in your brain where you, you know, your mind's just wondering and you get, you come up with brilliant ideas. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think that that ability to find the headspace to think deeply is really very, very important. I possibly shouldn't be saying this, but I've had some of my I've been working on data sharing news for years now, and trying to get just turn the handle an extra half a turn, an extra half a turn, drilling through concrete around the subtle and complexity of data sharing. I was with my wife in Japan, and we were sitting at an onsen, and I had a eureka moment. Literally leapt out of the hot bath and said, "It's that's the way to do it." I had another one whilst on vacation and I thought I couldn't work out between this or that. And I realized it's actually and it's and these two things. And again, it was a, a, an issue of just having some quiet time and being you know, removed from your daily circumstance that your mind then is allowed to, to sink a little more deeply into issues that have been troubling you. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think Australians are, they're one of the hardest working nations in terms of the amount of time they spent at work. So the actual hours, I don't know how productive they all are, but like they certainly spend a lot of time at work. So maybe, maybe there's something good. It would be an interesting experiment to try it and try it on the scale that Iceland tried it on. 
and see how much of a difference it actually makes. It, it would be really interesting to get to go. So now I've looked at the key highlights of the 2021-22 New South Wales Intergenerational Report. Um, in this report, it looks forward 40 years to 2061 to understand how your state's population, economy, finances may change based on global and local trends and current policies. Can you tell us a little bit about this report? Yeah, so the Intergenerational Report is something that comes out of New South Wales Treasury, and it really is exactly that point. It's a long-term prediction of what the state might look like based on a range of highly likely factors and then some which are potentially variable. So it allows future scenarios to be examined and also what assumptions must be true in order for those future scenarios to to actually be realised. And so from that perspective, it's a really good way to to think about uh, the future of the state. There are a couple of issues, of course. Uh, the state's population is expected to grow. That's something that, that we, we expect Australia's population to grow between now and that time frame. We expect the world's population to grow, but Australia's perspective is, is a little bit more around the uh, relatively uh, managed control of immigration or skilled migration or whatever migration to Australia. It's also, we know that the, we've got a population which is ageing. We're all living longer. I think statistically, if you get through today, you get another eight hours. You may not want them. Uh, you may not need them, but you get them, uh, statistically at least. And that rate of ageing is actually increasing. So in, if in 10 years' time, it might be nine hours. In 20 years' time, it might be 10 hours. Uh, you can just imagine if you get 24 hours for every 24 hours, then we'd have a really interesting challenge then. But we also know that uh, the population is urbanising and that has consequences for, for example, about where we put skills and resources and also deliberate attempts to reverse the flow of urbanisation or to to stimulate regional parts of, of the state and, of course, the rest of Australia. So we also know that we've been living through some pretty good times in terms of revenues and the cost of services we know going forward that health will increasingly take a bigger proportion of the budget, even though the budget grows year on year. The proportion that health takes, and this is true in all states and territories, is increasing. Uh, by the way, we do a, uh, the Data Analytics Centre does now a uh, map my budget for the state, and you can see the, these different proportions that go into different clusters changing over time. COVID, of course, has a, had a big impact, but even without that, the, that trend is increasing. So we know that there's potentially a gap the way things currently run between revenue collected by the state and also the expenditure. And that gap is something that now means we've got a really strong motivation to think about the cost of government, the cost of doing business in government. So increasingly issues like data sharing and use, use of AI, use of of smart will start to be uh, taken up by government itself to run government more efficiently and hopefully more effectively so the intergenerational report calls out a couple of really big uh, demographic changes. It calls out a couple of big, uh, quite big uh, environmental changes. We, we certainly expect the world to be different, where we can grow food, where we can live by 2061. And it also calls out some, some it's less focused on technology, but those assumptions that if this assumption comes to fruition, then these are some of the factors that we need to underpin it. And this is the impact that it has in our future scenario. So definitely worth a read. I'll put the link in. And I was just wondering, you know, going New South Wales seems to me, um, not that I've actually checked if, if Victoria has it, but if what they found there you can extrapolate to other states in a, a lesser or more way, depending on how big the state is. Do you, do you think that that could be true? 
Yeah, so I think there are a couple of quite important uh, fundamentals with we operate, the fact that we are highly urbanised, the fact that 90-something percent of our population lives in the capital cities. But there are particular issues for Northern Territory, there are particular issues for Western Australia, there are particular issues for South Australia, particularly for Tasmania. But certainly the, the, there are some, some, some fundamentals which are generally applicable. Yeah. So Australia has just announced its first tech council, which is a huge move in this space. Um, Atlassian and Afterpay and all these guys uh, that are gazillionaires, as I call them. What do you think we should be doing in this space to encourage and foster businesses? So a couple of important things. The first is that increasingly there are, there are lots of peak bodies in Australia. I mentioned the Australian Computer Society, there's also the AIIA, there's Engineers Australia, there's now the Tech Council, each with different focus, each with different role to play. But I think increasingly we should be working together to develop some, some common thematic messages so that when government seeks advice, it, it's not getting a very different answer from, from one group versus another. So I think some more alignment would be a great thing to do. The second thing is that it's, it's great to see that people who've really succeeded form the Tech Council and got a lot of res- have a lot of respect for everybody who was uh, announced as being part of that Tech Council. I think, again, it's possible to identify some, some barriers and some, some things which are uh, uniquely true to Australia. So we were talking about the four-day week before. There are some cultural issues that we have to address in Australia. I think each and every one of the organisations who claims to be a peak body should be demonstrating how to do it. We should be taking, we should be eating our own dog food, taking our own medicine and saying, and demonstrating this is how to do it. And I think that there are, uh, there are some challenges around skills. There are challenges around STEM and STEM graduates. Uh, there are challenges around women in the workforce, uh, in particular in the STEM workforce. And there are challenges around, well, I was going to say the challenges around starting a company in Australia, but to, to some very large extent, Places like Stone and Chalk and the other accelerators have, have, have started to soften those, those issues. So within that, that environment, we could all be pushing on some of these issues together. Just take STEM graduates. If, if we all pushed on that issue together, rather than each doing our own thing or doing things in an uncoordinated way, then I, I think if, if we all work together, we'd have a, a much better chance of addressing those big systemic changes. I mentioned that the Data Analytics Centre was created inside New South Wales government to address wicked policy challenges. A wicked challenge is something that's persistent, that it's complex, it's subtle, and it has a lot of different factors that need to be addressed in order to, to make that difference in the real world. Now, our tech environment, our contribution from the tech sector to the future of Australia's economy is something that if we all work together, we might actually have a, a much better a chance of success. If we think about the infrastructure, the physical built budgets of every state and territory and the Commonwealth compared to the digital infrastructure for every budget for every state and territory, they are an order of magnitude apart. I just mentioned that the Digital Restart Fund in New South Wales is $1.6 billion there's also $100 billion worth of built infrastructure planned. So changing those ratios slightly, uh, helping people understand the value of smart, putting more emphasis on cybersecurity, for example, as part of the not just the insurance policy, but the upskilling process of our future workforce. We could all work together on people, on tech, on regulation, and also that cultural 
cringe still a little bit if you say you want to have a career in STEM, in particular if you're a young girl. We've got some cultural issues to deal with as well. And again, I think working in a more united way would actually be a very useful uh, way to move Australia forward. We are moving. We're doing quite okay. But I think we could move a lot faster forward. I've heard you say now several times, like if we all work together, and I think this is a this is a crucial point, is that um, certainly in Victoria, like there are lots of organisations, and I'm just going to touch on women in STEM, like lots of organisations doing little things, women in STEM, women in robotics, which I happen to be a co-host of, but like lots of, but the, the, the crux is like everyone's, you know, we spend so much energy on our own if we were all amalgamated and all just going forward as one. And, I mean, this is extrapolated then to the rest of Australia and all the different states of doing this because, you know, who knows what's happening in New South Wales? Who knows what's happening in Queensland? Like, I'm not across all of it, but, you know, I know they're little bits. But, um, you know, maybe we need one person. I'm not suggesting it's me or you because clearly we've got other things to do. But to to bring all these people together or... Um, do you know if they're all being brought together under one umbrella? I don't think that I don't think anyone's quite willing to move things under one umbrella. But I think having those common thematic messages, some common goals, I think, and and as well as then having your own specialisation, I think that's probably more likely to happen. I, I, this year, this is my second year of being president of the Australian Computer Society. And the messaging that I've been trying to, to drive through with the Australian Computer Society is that we're part of an ecosystem. So the, the Australian Computer Society, ACS, will have its own particular roles and goals, but we should have common goals for Australia that we agree with the AIIA or the PSC Foundation or Engineers Australia or the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering. And I think we can all still do our own specialisation although increasingly it's difficult for member-based organisations to, to, to have that autonomy, but I think we can work in a much more coherent way together and really try and drive advice for government, you know, impact for society, create resources. And I think the, uh, the states can also work better together. There's been really good effort through the Digital and Data Ministers meeting, which used to be called the Australian Digital Data Council, where every state and territory has a, has a digital minister, in our case, it's Minister Dominello, and the Commonwealth uh, coordinates this group. And we all have projects that we lead, but we're collectively sharing the responsibility for delivering on those projects. And we just recently announced the uh, intergovernmental data sharing principles, which help with that understanding and whether it's for understanding impact of COVID or whether it's looking at natural hazards. The, the ability to share data across state and commonwealth jurisdictional boundaries starts to unclag systems, which means we can actually work more closely together. But it works because we have a common set of goals, we have relatively good understanding of what the indicators are, and we've got individual projects that everyone gets to take some share of that leading responsibility, but we're all working together. So more of that, I think, is important. Australia is just much too small a place for people to use competitive language. It's much too small a place for people to talk about their patch. And that alignment at a broad principles level with common goals, I think would be very, very helpful. And also means then that people can still go about doing their own individual work uh, with their individual emphasis in within that environment. 
Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And collaboration is my middle name, and that's you know that's that's how you have to do it. No, rising tide lifts all ships. You know, you can you can be out there bashing your head, or you can get people to collaborate, and everyone it's a win win for everyone. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say your parents are very foresighted to give you a middle name of collaboration. <laughs> I'm being completely facetious, but that's fine. Call me collaboration ends for. So now on a personal note, like you're a professor and um, like I can see, I, I follow you on LinkedIn, so I'm well aware of how busy you are and what you evolved in. How do you manage your time? And um, you mentioned a wife, so you obviously have a family. Give us, give us a synopsis of your life. Uh, so a simple matter, um, I'm married to a barrister who I would consider to be a workaholic and we have no kids. So I'm, I'm filling in time. <laughs> <laughs> that's your answer pass it on to your wife <laughs> yeah so, so the, the noise you just heard in the background with my wife doing barristry things while we're both working from home now I, there are it, i think it's fair to say that I, i've been really very fortunate to have roles and responsibilities over the years that, that has allowed me to to take a more holistic view so as chief data scientist for the state of new south wales and when i was running data analytics so the, the value of standards became increasingly apparent and I mean standards with a big S, not a small S. So if we want data sets to talk to each other, if we want algorithms to be operated safely, we need standards. But then you start looking at the world of standards, you realise that there's a whole group of professional people, for example, in the Australian Computer Society, who have similar motivations. So it became a really natural way of starting to share some problems, data sharing and use, what's the level of personal information and data set with the professional community. And then it became really apparent that some of those questions were really research, cutting edge research questions as opposed to engineering questions where you could just build the solution. So it became then about discovering new things. So it's been really fortunate that I found a really good problem in the form of data sharing and use, which again manifests in so many different ways of our, our digital world, whether it's digital health or whether it's smart cities or AI. And as far as I'm concerned, I only work on one thing and it just manifests in different ways. And that one thing is data sharing and use. And it just happens to be and has been a hot topic for some time. And I suspect it will be a hot topic for quite a few years to come. Oh, definitely, without a doubt. Now, um, I normally ask people, have you got a mentor? So I'll ask you this. You, you would have had a mentor along the way. And I'm assuming you definitely are a mentor to many. I'm in a formal mentoring program now through the Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering, which is wonderful. I've also had quite a few PhD students along the way, which part of the role is, is to be mentored, is, is to mentor. Uh, it's fair to say that I've, I've learned a lot from my colleagues inside New South Wales government. And I'm also, uh, I don't think I'm allowed to be a fan of a minister, but if, if I was allowed to be a fan of a minister, I probably am a fan of the digital minister in New South Wales. But I've been really impressed by the calibre of the colleagues at the most senior level in New South Wales government. And that's, that really isn't uh, a throwaway statement. I, I wouldn't have stayed if I wasn't impressed by these folks. So you know, there's plenty of other things to do. But within the Department of Customer Service and then previously within Treasury and then before that in what we call finance service and innovation, there are some real class acts. And these are, these are folks that it's actually a joy to work with and... I don't deliberately sit in meetings going, oh, that was a really clever thought. I need to, I need to take, make note of that. But uh, there, are, there are more than one time where I would actually go and seek advice because it, dealing with big, very public problems, complex problems, it, it actually is really great to have people to turn to who can give you advice. I'm going to call out Damon Rees, who's the, the head of um, Service New South Wales. He was my boss for a little while before he ran off to run Service New South Wales. 
he's an example of someone who is always generously willing to give his time and really thoughtful introspection. And he's a busy guy. So I'm going to call him out as a, 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 a perhaps an informal or informal, uh, informal mentor. So any lessons or regrets you've had along your journey, Ian? Oh, boy. How much time have we got? <laughs> Give us a highlight. <laughs> okay, so um, just within New South Wales government, uh, the Data Analytics Centre was created back in 2015. Uh, it was when I, when I walked in, there were a couple of people who were seconded in to try and make it work. Uh, there was no budget, there was no data, there was no data scientists, uh, but there were 10, 10 projects endorsed by New South Wales Cabinet. And I thought, wow, uh, this is day one on the job. I wonder whether it will be a day two. And the, the approach on day two was take a, a note out of Harry Truman's playbook. If you can't solve a problem, make it bigger. So we did. We made the problems much, much bigger. And in some cases, that worked really well. We started talking about really big outcomes, existential outcomes. And in some cases, that worked really, really well. In some cases, it just blew up. It absolutely blew up. I think it's fair to say that I've stepped on every data landmine that it's possible to step on inside New South Wales government and, and had bits of myself blown off and then sewn back on over the years. The good out of that is that we now have a set of, with, with our data sharing frameworks, we now have a set of 15 sensitivities, none of which relate to commercial sensitivities, 15 sensitivities or issues or risks we need to consider around data sharing and use. So by stepping on all those landmines, at least we've got a, we've built an immunity. That's not quite right. I don't want to make a virus analogy, but we've got now a set of risks or sensitivities that we need to take into consideration. And that's been really, really great. It was just a really expensive process to learn what those 15 were. And as I said, that does not include commercial sensitivity. Um, there's lots of other uh, lessons learnt, uh, but I would actually ask for a glass of wine and possibly lie down on the couch <laughs> to go through the rest of them. I'll put my counsellor hat on and we'll go through them one by one. I'll, no, oh. no, Ian, it's fine. <laughs> Any closing thoughts or remarks you'd like to leave our, our audience with, Ian? So I think we're at a really interesting time. The increased use of data, increased use of AI is inevitable. We will be digital in COVID has made us very digital very quickly, but we will, we will stay on our digitization trajectory for quite some time. One of the things that I'm spending more and more time thinking about is that world of 2030, 2040, 2050, and trying to ensure that we bake in now enough of that future thinking to ensure that we're still in a world that we want by 2030, 2040, 2050. The UN Sustainability Goals 2030 give us a view of how the world might look. And in order to deliver on that so that at 2030, we're living in the utopian version of that as opposed to a dystopian version of that, I think we need to put some effort into. So what I'd like us to do is to ensure that if we are the frog in the pot, I want to make sure we have a thermometer. I want to make sure we have a ladder and we have some instructions on how to get out of the pot if it's getting too hot. Yeah. So are you hopeful for our future and the future we're living for future generations here? I think that human beings are very adaptive and we will we will keep adapting as long as we're able to adapt. And I don't think we're out of adaptability just yet. But what does get me a little depressed sometimes is sometimes we need a crisis in order to move forward. And we, we don't have a shortage of crises these days. We had the natural disasters, we had bushfires, we had droughts, then we had floods, then we had mice plagues. So it takes, unfortunately, a crisis for us to move forward but I think we will not have a shortage of crises in the future 
and I'm confident that we will adapt in a positive way. And the more that we acknowledge that the problems we care most about are people-centric will certainly affect people, and the answers to those problems mean a lot of people need to come together and to work on agreed outcomes. I'm, I'm hopeful and, in fact, quite positive that we will continue to be able to do that. It's just if we could dial down the need for crises, that would be great. <laughs> Never waste a good crisis, Ian, is what I say. There's always something Indeed. that's going to good. <laughs> Ian, if anyone would like to uh, reach you, can I put your email address in the show notes? Absolutely. Fantastic. So the one that I've been communicating with you, I'll put it there. Thank you so much for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And uh, to our listeners, join us next week for another episode of Let's Talk Robotics. Thanks very much. Thanks, Ian.